0: Good evening, everyone. If you will turn with me to Psalm 111. And once you have turned there, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 111. And we will read all the way through the end of Psalm 112. So two psalms today. Psalm 111, starting in verse 1. Says, I will give. says, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Psalm 112, starting in verse one says, Praise the Lord! Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who who greatly delights in His commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. be to God. So today, tonight, our study will be titled, Like Father, Like Son. And as I was preparing uh, the sermon this week, I wasn't planning on preaching two psalms. I was planning on preaching Psalm 112 and had worked on it, had written through it for a little while. And then when I got to studying in the commentaries and the study Bibles, they all said that psalm 112 belongs in tandem with psalm 111 and so i quickly realized that i would not be preaching just psalm 112 this week and what we see here how they are organized is if you notice at the end of verse 10 of psalm 111 it says the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and at the beginning of psalm 112 it said blessed is the man Who fears the Lord." So it's a linking phrase that ties the two together and then they're both Hebrew acrostic poems. And so if you remember acrostic poems from grade school or middle school or if you still do them now, either you write them out as a whole word or as the alphabet, you write words that go along and flow with it. So it's meant for memorization, it's meant to better understand, to remember the content inside the psalm. And so these psalms were put together in two Hebrew crossings for the sake of memory. One of them being great are the Lord's works and the other being that the righteous man is never moved. The righteous man who follows the Lord, who's obedient to the Lord, who delights in the Lord resembles the character of God. That is why the title of tonight is like father, like son. And it's important is that they give this relationship of who God is and what his people ought to look like. And all this is pointing to the idea that God's people should resemble the God that they serve. God's people should look like Him. They should act like Him. They should love like Him. God's people should remember and resemble the God that they claim to follow. So we'll begin in verse 1 of Psalm 111. It says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. And this is wholehearted praise. He's not going through the motions. In the body of believers, God is due our praise. We we ought to praise God. We should praise God day in and day out as a congregation. That's why we gather on Sundays is to give God our praise for what He has done. He's giving God thanks for all He's about to write about in the psalm, God's character, His person, His work. He's giving God praise. And there's personal thanksgivings in the psalms and there are corporate thanksgivings. So as we saw for those of you here last week, Psalm 118 is a personal thanksgiving to God, rejoicing for the work that the Lord had done in his life personally, and now today it's a corporate thanksgiving for what God has done in the past in redemptive history, and now moving forward into the future. It's just this thanksgiving of a corporate way. And I think that both of these ought to be in our prayer life. Maybe we have a tendency to do personal thanksgiving, or maybe more of a tendency to thank God for what he has done throughout the course of time. But they both should exist together are your prayers of thanksgiving corporate or are they personal we should have both when we come to the lord in prayer we should recount the works of god in our life in the church at large in all of church history in biblical history and all of redemptive history we should be recounting the works of the lord we should let what we read in scripture drive our prayer life drive what we ask God for, what we thank God for, what we petition God for, that we should what we read in scripture drives our prayer life. And this is what the psalmist is getting at in verse 2 when he says great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them studied by all who who enjoy them, who all who find joy in the words of the Lord, examined by all who rejoice in them and this was convicting for me as I wrote this sermon in thinking of how easy it is for me to study the word and to not actually rejoice in who God is for it it's you can read through the book of Exodus and find it interesting but it not lead me to praise and thanksgiving for the wondrous works of who God is and what he has done for his people that he's got his God has brought his people out of bondage and he has delivered them I can read that and think it's interesting think it's fascinated, but not lead me to worship and to thanksgiving for who God is. So scripture ought to drive our thanksgivings in our prayer life to the Lord. And every time he rescues his people, and he does it time and time again, even though he knows that they are going to walk away from him. He's going to restore them, just like in the book of Judges, when we're walking through it, it's so easy to look at the cycle of the Judges and think that, oh God, gave them rest again and brought them out of their misery again. And it just becomes habitual when our praise ought to reflect what we've read in Scripture and see how good God is and delight in who God is and drive us to, to be thankful, to worship Him, to praise Him from what we read in His Word. Think of all that happens in the book of Genesis. It's so easy to, to read through it and find it Again, interesting or even worse, boring at times when we can look and see that throughout all of redemptive history, it starts in Genesis and we understand how the rest of salvation works because of Genesis. And it's all, this psalm is getting at that we delight in God's Word. We study His Word and we delight in it. Do you read Scripture to move on to the next chapter or do you read Scripture to worship God, to enjoy God? to delight in God. Think of the Gospels in the New Testament or Paul's letters and how often do you enjoy who God is reading more through His Word. How often does it lead you to enjoy Him or how often does it lead you to just know more about Him? We ought to delight in who God is because of what His Word says about Him. How often does your time reading, does your time studying lead you actually to worship or just to the next page? It's so easy to read God's word without delighting it. But the psalmist is saying, we give thanks to the Lord and his works are great and all who study them truly delight in them. So as we study God's word, do we really delight in his word? And we'll see later on in Psalm 112 that it is the truly righteous man is one who delights in God's word, who delights in who God is, who studies the word, who worships through his <coughs> word. And that is what the righteous man does. And so we, we get this contrast of who God is in Psalm 111, and then who, how the righteous man responds in Psalm 112. How could you better delight in God's Word? How can you better enjoy who God is because of what His Word says about Him? I think there are a couple things that we can do to better enjoy God, to better delight in who God is, and one of them begins with actually just reading His Word. Some of you might be in a season where you don't necessarily delight in god and it might just be because you avoid your time with him you avoid reading his word or you just glance through his word you work through it, and you don't actually read it to see what it says about him what it says about you what it says about all of salvation history god i've heard it described that the scripture is god's love letter to his people that is this beautiful message in tons of books that is all about how much god loved his people to send his son and if this truly is God's great love letter for His people, then we ought to see it as that and rejoice in it as God's love letter. Open His Word. If you are in a season of dryness and just don't even want to get into the Word, it's hard to open up the Scripture. It's hard to get in time with prayer. You just have to open the word. Force yourself to do it time, and time again. Come back to Scripture. See what it says about God. Ask yourself, what does this teach about God? How is this good? How is this lovely? And the more you just return to the Scriptures, the more we learn about God. And the more we learn that there is to delight in God. And another thing is that there might be some of you thinking that you do read your Bible, and even maybe even read it every day, and you just struggle to delight in the person of God. You struggle to really enjoy God as you're reading His Word. And I get it that it happens to all of us. All of us can attest in this room that there's been season where we just come to the Word time and time again and we don't enjoy our time in the Word. But there are some solutions to this. We don't just keep in this pattern of reading the Word, not enjoying it, dreading it the next day, going back to it again. There's, there's ways to get out of the rut. And one of them is to read other books outside of Scripture by people who truly delight in the person of God, who worship Him through their writings, who give more of an understanding as to who God is and how you can praise Him for it. I was thinking, as I was preparing this, there was a season this past semester of seminary where a week or two of just getting into the Word of not, not enjoying it, not delighting in who God was, but I was reading a book at the same time about Christ's personal work, and Daily as I'd read that book it would lead me to praise and lead me to worship more so than my personal time with the Lord did and so Reading books that stir our affections for the Lord can draw us out of seasons of dryness and then help us to see Clearly what is in Scripture that makes God so good, but one that's even more important than reading and reading might be a hard something to make time for in this season of life Another thing is just lean into community. We have this whole community right here in front of us, and there are so many people in this church that delights in God, delight in His Word, delight in who He is as a person. And then we don't ask them how they do it. We don't ask them what they love about the Lord. We don't ask them anything that helps us to then gain that love for the Lord. And I can think of many conversations that I've had with people that in this church, in the dry season for me, I go have a conversation with them and It leads me to worship the Lord after. It leads me to love the Lord more. It leads me to delight in God more because of the witness of someone else's walk with the Lord. It is the gift of community. The Lord has given us a great, wonderful community of so many people who have great relationships with Him. We have to use it to build one another up in our enjoyment of who God is. We continue on. Moving into verse 3, the psalmist says, Full of splendor and majesty is His work, And his righteousness endures forever. Full of splendor, full of majesty. Think of of the work of creation. From the mountains to the oceans, the prairies, the canyons, the tall trees, the dry deserts. And all of this is crafted by God's hand. Splendor and majesty, greatness and glory, wonder and awe. God has given us his works of creation to marvel at, to rejoice in, to love, to adore. God created light. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He gave gave us the land and the sea and the plants and the trees. He created seasons. He created the stars. He created the animals. And then he formed the crown of his creation. Something after his own likeness that can rule and reign over the rest of his creation. Something that could work and to keep the land that he has made. And most of all, he created that something to have relationship with himself. God created mankind. He tailored man in such a way that man bears God's own image and can be in relationship with him. This is one of the most glorious works of creation that we can take pleasure in that not only are we an animal that roams around, are we a plant, we we are a person that has been made in God's image full relationship with him, that we get to experience this creation, we get to experience this earth, we get to experience this life different than any other thing that God created. We were given special order, special tasks, special relationships with all of creation and with humankind and with God himself. God's works are something to take pleasure in especially the work of creating man and creating man in his own image. But it's not only the work of his creation, but it's also his work in In the covenants throughout all of biblical history throughout all of redemptive history God has had faithful endurance time and time again as man continued to fall and fail time and time again God made covenant after covenant agreement after agreement with his people in the Old Testament and man always failed to hold up his end of the agreement yet God always remained Faithful, It's this wondrous work of God that as man continued to forsake his end of the covenant, God never forsook his end. It's a marvelous work. He brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt, led them into the wilderness, and brought them into the promised land because it's exactly what it was. It was promised land. Israel didn't earn the promised land. God had promised it to them and then delivered them despite their disobedience, despite their sin, despite their wickedness, and brought them into the land. God's people frequently transgress the covenant that he made with them. But he still brought them over, across the River Jordan, and into the Promised Land. It had nothing to do with their own righteousness. And even in the book of Deuteronomy, Mo- Deuteronomy, Moses speaks to the people and says specifically, it is not because of your righteousness that you are entering the land today. It is because of God's righteousness. So we see all throughout Scripture these people have fallen. Moses even brings in the golden calf incident, just as The chief example that God's people have transgressed his covenant. And it was all because of God's mercy, God's enduring faithfulness, and God's righteousness, not Israel. So they were given the land that God had promised to them. And as the psalmist says right here in this verse, that his righteousness endures forever. It is not a temporary righteousness that once our end of the covenant is broken. He doesn't have to hold up his end. His righteousness endures forever despite what man's response is, what man's sin tendency is, what man's wickedness is. God's righteousness always endures forever. And because of that, he's given a way for his splendor and majesty to be remembered. And we see this in verse 4, that he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And it is through his word that his works are remembered. Our church statement of faith says, the Bible was written by men as the Holy Spirit spoke to them, revealing the truth of God. We believe that God has given his word to us. He has spoken through people to write down and pass on to preserve for all of church history. God's word is his gift to us. It is his spoken word that became his written word to us. We believe God has given us His Word. We believe in the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we believe that God felt it necessary to also include in the Bible not just a list of commands and a way to live, but a lot of narrative in the Bible to demonstrate how often people fall short and how good He is in preserving His end of the covenant. And as people can delight in studying his wondrous works that we could see laws and we could see ways to live and we could see doctrine of who God is, but when we get to see how it's lived out throughout biblical history, throughout church history, it brings to life really who God is and being faithful to his people when they are not faithful. He's appointed the scriptures as his means of doing so and we are to delight in them. He has preserved them up to this point in time that we would still Studied, and that we would enjoy His Word, that we would enjoy who God is because of what His Word says about Him. All other writing and history pales in comparison to how Scripture has been preserved. And this is not just because God's people were really diligent over the years. It's because it is the work of God Himself to preserve His Word for us. And we have to delight in what His Word says. Let's not forget the preservation of the Holy Word is yet another marvelous work to add to all the list of God's marvelous works. The psalmist proceeds in verse 5 and says, He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. And some people will take this verse as God's provision to Israel in the wilderness, and some take it as His daily provision for His people. And I think that it's both. I think it's consistent with God's character in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's who he is. He provides food for his people. He provides provisions and portions for his people. He provided food for Israel in the wilderness after they escaped Egypt. For 40 years, God sustained them by giving them food. Despite their grumbling about the food that he gave them, he continued to give them food for 40 years. He provided food through the New Testament and Jesus' talks in his prayer when he teaches his people to pray. He says, "Give us this day our daily bread." And so as we pray to the Lord, we know that we ask him and he's the provider of our daily bread. Just as he was for Israel, he is to us now. He's the giver of daily bread. He provides us with our portion. He's still to this day our provider, nutritionally, physically, spiritually. God is the provider for His people it's because He remembers His covenant forever. This word is literally to eternity. God's grace and mercy are not swayed by our faithfulness or lack thereof. He's faithful to His covenant forever. This covenant is a binding agreement that He made with His people. There is no end to His promise. His promise always endures. God will always provide for His people because there is no end to His provisions. He will continuously for all time provide for his people despite his people not delighting in the provisions that he has given them. He's given, even outside of provisions of food, he's given provisions of land to his people. And we see this in verse 6. It says, he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. And this is drawing on on the specific example of the exodus. He displayed good works for his chosen nation. He brought them into the land of Canaan. He gave them this great inheritance that he had promised to them. And there's a bountiful inheritance waiting for us in Christ. That our promised land is far greater than the land the Israelites would enter into is far greater than the land flowing with milk and honey. Our promised land is beautiful, it's marvelous. It's this eternal glory with God. And if you turn with me to Revelation 21, there's a, a small depiction of what this land actually looks like what we get in eternal glory with God. And it's much more marvelous than the land of Canaan. It describes just, just a taste of what we get with the coming Holy City. Revelation 21, we'll read verses 1 through 4 and then jump down to verse 22. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And jump down to verse 22. The description of God's holy city, how he provides for his people time and time again, not only with food, but also with a place, an inheritance, a place to worship him in eternal glory. And it's much more marvelous than the earthly land of Canaan. Even though it is flowing with milk and honey, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is far greater. The the greater inheritance that we have in Christ is far greater than, than the promised land that was given to the Israelites and this is still God's doing for his people, still the work that God does for his people. It's a place for all nations to worship him. The promised land for Israel was their deliverance out of Egypt, and the coming promised land for us is our deliverance from, from this life into eternal glory. And this, this is a glorious truth to delight in. I find myself when I get to Revelation, get to read through this and seeing what the new city the new jerusalem the heavenly city looks like it's i have a longing to be there a longing to be in glory with christ who who is the light of the word who makes the sun shine without the sun shining that is the eternal glory that we get to have with god's the inheritance that is coming our way as followers of christ and the psalmist continues from god's provision of food and land to talking about god's trustworthy word he says in verses 7 and 8 the works of his hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. And not only are God's works powerful, they are also faithful and just. Prefacing this verse with these two characteristics makes way for the second part of the verse. Because God is faithful to His covenant, because He is just, His precepts His statutes, His laws, His word can be trusted because He is faithful, because He is just. He is trustworthy. And this is once again a wonderful blessing from the Lord that we have His word and we have laws and we have precepts that we can trust that He is faithful to and He is just to that are good and He is a trustworthy God. This is a wonderful blessing. We live in an age where new laws are frequently passed Old laws are done away with, and even Supreme Court rulings can be overturned. And no matter how morally good or bad these decisions are, they're often changing to fit the cultural climate of the day. But not so with the precepts of God. His are faithful, his are just, his are good, and they are trustworthy. When God establishes something, you know for certain it stands on solid ground. He's not taking back any of his word. He's not taking back any of his laws. What he establishes is on solid ground. There's no overturning with God. There's no replacing with God. There's only fulfilling. There's only completion. There's only satisfaction with God's law. He is trustworthy, and his commands are trustworthy. And because of all this, he expects obedience from his people, God requires his people to follow his precepts. Because he is upright, because he is faithful, he expects his people to act in faithfulness and act in uprightness. And how do his people respond to that in faithfulness? How do they respond to God? How can a human walk in uprightness? How can someone truly obey God's precepts? It all begins with the heart that God's word and his first commandment is all about the heart and having God at the center of your worship, at the center of what you adore and what your focus is on. It's all about your heart. We must have nothing in our hearts over God. What is in our heart is what will drive our obedience, what we follow, what we are obedient to. What we most desire is often what we acquire. What we pursue most often in our life is what we will most often be filled of. What we desire is often what we acquire. Have you had seasons in your life where you were really chasing money? You probably made more money in that season than you normally do. Have you had seasons where you were really pursuing fitness, you were chasing fitness? You probably became more fit. Have you had seasons where you really leaned in community, into community, you really needed it, and once you started pursuing relationships relationship with others, you felt more involved in the community. Who we desire, what's on our heart, is most often, not always, but most often, what we acquire. But often, our life is filled with things like materialism. If you've had a season of materialism, you probably saw more Amazon boxes show up on your front porch than normal that month. Um, And we think of just anything that is vanity or striving after the wind. When our desires and our focus is set on that, it takes away from our desire on God. And it makes us more into that image than into God's image. But the same thing happens for good things. Fitness can be a good thing. Reading can be a good thing. If you have a desire to read, most likely you read more. What about personal holiness? What about being obedient to God in His commands. What about delighting in the person of God? You see, I think this works the exact same way as everything else does. That as you delight in God, as you put your focus of your heart on God, you start to respond more in in holiness, you grow in sanctification, you love the Lord more, you're more obedient to Him. And maybe you're in a season like that right now or maybe you're wondering why your life doesn't look like that right now. And it's probably, for those of you who are in a good season of growth right now, your focus is probably on the Lord and your focus is probably on the way of God and His Word and wanting to grow in righteousness and grow in holiness and grow in love for Him and His law. If you're not in a rich season of growth and walking in holiness and righteousness, your utmost desire is probably not God. You've probably conflated something up to the level with God. You still pursue your relationship with Him, but it is not first and foremost in your heart as the first commandment gives it to us that God must be chief in our hearts. He must be high above all else. All else. So what's, what's the focus of your heart right now? What do you most desire? It's truly amazing that God often gives us exactly what our hearts want. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, the Lord will give it to us And this exact same thing happens with Pharaoh in the Exodus. And he was the king of Egypt. He was the Pharaoh of all the land. And before the Israelites journeyed into the wilderness, before God started this Exodus story, he sent plagues of judgment upon Egypt. And every time Pharaoh would seek Moses, and he would seek him out and ask to relieve them of this plague, and he would say that he would let the people go. Then every time when it came time to let the people go, it would say that Pharaoh harden his heart against God or that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it's a little tough to read that sometimes and think, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? That sounds like, it sounds like a bad thing. It doesn't sound like it could be a good thing. And this, this idea of hardening his heart is actually this idea of strengthening his heart, giving him his himself over to his desires, increasing the what's in his heart already and growing them into more desires, stronger desires, a hardened desire. And Pharaoh, had bad desires. He had desires against God to, to rule over God, to not let the Israelite God have power over him. And so he was strengthened in that desire. His heart was hardened to that desire. And that happens often to us that as we continue to pursue stuff, whether it's the Lord, whether it's something not good, we become strengthened in that desire. And God gives us over to that desire, sometimes to show us exactly what our desire is and how it is disordered and sometimes to give us great growth and holiness. And this is consistent in in our whole life, in our whole walk, that God will sometimes give us into our deepest desire, and it will reveal to us the depths of our heart. If you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, you might have seen good desires for Him. You might have seen holiness and desire for righteousness, or you might have seen a wickedness and a sin and a disordered desire that is you've placed something over God. But how then, if something is above God in our lives, how do we grow in our desire for Him? How do we grow in our desire for who He is to delight in Him, to walk in faithfulness and obedience to His precepts? Verses 9 and 10 in the psalm help us with the answer to that question. It says, He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And because God has provided redemption, and again, it's more Exodus imagery. He's commanded His covenant, His name is holy. It is awesome. It is set apart. It is wonderful. And the beautiful thing about these two verses is it is a cause and effect relationship. And because God is holy and awesome, we ought to fear Him. To some of you, that response might make sense, knowing the fear of the Lord and understanding the fear of the Lord. It seems like a right response to a holy and awesome God. And to others, it might sound like the wrong response, that if God is an awesome God, why should we fear Him? And this is a beautiful play on words here, in the Hebrew with it, the word for awesome used in verse nine for God is the same word that is used in verse 10 for the fear of the Lord. It's conjugated differently, but it's the same word. So it's this cause and effect relationship. that because God is fearfully awesome, the right response to him is fear because of who God is that determines our response. We don't determine our response. Who God is determines our response. To live in right relationship to the one who is fearfully awesome, the right response is to fear him. This is a right view of God, a fear of his divine power, a reverence for his character and awe for his works and awe for his person. And it determines and it defines the beginning of our relationship with him. The beginning of our relationship with God is the right understanding, the right fear of him. And when we understand who God is, it can direct our hearts directly to Him. And when our praises for Him endure, He will be the focus of our hearts as we begin and see this right understanding, this fear of the Lord, and then we continue to respond to praise and grow in our fear and our understanding of the Lord, He becomes more in our hearts. He becomes greater in our hearts, and our love for Him starts to overflow into obedience to Him. And then, as it continues, we can truly perform His precepts with uprightness, with faithfulness when he is who we most desire holiness is often what follows that holiness is often what we will acquire if god is our greatest desire in life when god is the center of our heart when god is the center of our worship we will grow in his likeness and where does psalm 112 fit into all this it seems like that could be pretty cut-and-dry psalm with Psalm 111. don't know if I need to proceed, but why are these a literary unit? Why are they put together? How do we understand Psalm 112 in light of Psalm 111? And 111 gives us reason to think that God's people really can walk in obedience to Him, that right fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom and understanding, leads to His praise, enduring forever, leads to obedience and life. And if it gives us reason to think that, then Psalm 112 gives us an explanation, an exposition, or an example of what the life of the man or the woman of God looks like. As we work through the rest of Psalm 112, I will use masculine pronouns as he, him, the man the whole time, but this is pertinent to both men and to women as just using a singular person. So. Women, If I use the masculine word, you don't let them become a stumbling block. I'm talking to both men and women the whole time. This is a great example for for all followers of the Lord in this time. There's a direct link between the verse 10 of Psalm 111 and verse 1 of Psalm 112. The end of 111 is a more general fear of the Lord as a principle. And now Psalm 112 is speaking of a man who is blessed because of his right fear of God. It sounds almost as if it belongs in Proverbs rather than Psalms. It speaks of the qualities and the characteristics of a righteous man, one who has a right relationship with God, one who delights in God's commandments. And besides the first line, it doesn't give any praise or recognition to God. But we'll see as we work through this, what it all is pointing to is that first line of praise of the Lord. So if you read with me in verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And God is given all the praise for this man's righteousness. If you were to take the first line of the song out of the psalm, as I said, it would be totally man-centered. It seems strange that a psalm that speaks so much about a man belongs in the book of praises to God. But the first line, this praise the Lord, is the working thesis for all of Psalm 112, that we give God praise because He is the giver of righteousness, that His character is right and just, and then His people then follow in righteousness and justice. This is a praise to God because God has given all the credit for any of the righteous ways of any person. God receives the credit for all of it just as one of us wouldn't grow in holiness and go tell everyone about how we have made ourselves more holy, we would say that the Lord has grown us in holiness. This is what is, it is doing right here, too. It is directing the praise to God for the growth and for the holiness in someone's life. All the obedience shown in this psalm, God is given praise for. And it makes sense. We see characteristics in this psalm that are very similar, if not the same characteristics that were given to God in the previous psalm. And God's people reflect who he is. His character shines through his people, like father, like son. And both of these Psalms show one main thing, that God's people can be righteous. They can walk in righteousness and live in obedience. You can have a good season. You won't be perfect, but you might have good days, good weeks, good months by God's grace and all of that good years is possible, it's no guarantee, but as you grow in holiness, you're also going to keep seeing different sins in your life pop up and they will often make you think that you aren't walking in obedience. But we can, we most definitely should try to walk in obedience to God and to his word. As we grow in righteousness and grow in holiness, God gives us the endurance to persevere in righteousness and holiness, but we will continue to see more and more of our sin time and time again. I think this tends to be a really large theological mistake that people will make, that so many people are so aware of their sins and so aware of their depravity that they are only ever thinking of how wicked they are, that... When sin comes and when depravity is seen, it's all emphasis on our sin. No emphasis on still walking in in some areas of righteousness with the Lord. And when we are so focused on ourselves and our sins, it strips God of the glory and the praise for periods and seasons of righteousness. It strips God of the credit that we could give Him, the praise that we could give Him for growing us, holiness that happens when we neglect to realize the personal growth that god has given us and when we only focus on our sins it is dishonoring to god and don't hear me say it is only better to talk about your holiness than to confess your sins there's there's room for both in the life of faith and there's a proper balance to both of them i think a the theological error that i've mentioned comes from good intentions most of the time and wanting to overcorrect from people who don't want to talk about sin, who don't want to confess their sin, who don't want to see their sins. But when we see Christians in a theological ditch, a lot of times people have a tendency to overcorrect. And if you're driving on the road, if we're going to keep going with this analogy, and you start drifting, and you get to the side of the road or even to the ditch, and you overcorrect, you end up in the other ditch. And it seems a little bit easier to justify being in the ditch that, that hates sin, that is aware of depravity rather than but it seems better to do that than to be in the ditch that doesn't acknowledge any sin or any depravity but it's still a ditch and it's not the road that we need to be walking on that we need to be driving on we need to correct and get back into the lane walking and driving with understanding our sin and our wickedness but also giving God glory for the righteousness and the holiness that he creates in us so how do we hold these intentions? How do we hold these two things? The one strips God of his holiness and recognition of a holy standard that he has for his people. The other strips God of his praise, do his name for growing us in righteousness. How do we hold these intention? How do we balance these two ideas? And to keep the analogy going longer than it should, how do we stay on the road without steering or veering into either ditch on the side of the road. And the second part of this first verse is the answer to that question. It says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. The fear of the Lord and the delight in His commandments is the proper response, is the proper posture of our faith, It's the proper response to who God is, and delight in His commandments will drive us both to recognition and confession of sin and also to glorifying Him and praising Him for the work that He has done in our lives. A right view of God and a right approach to God will give us both in our life. To delight in His Word, to understand His commands, to understand what He expects of His people, will help us to both to see our sins compared to His holiness, but also to see the growth that He has given us from our past self to to the new creation that He is making us in fearing god gives us the ability to see ourselves rightly before god and to also see god in right relationship to us the man who fears the lord he's blessed he's happy in the lord he's blessed he's happy in his life he's like the man in psalm 1 who meditates on the law day and night he sounds like david in psalm 19 when david says the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul This is what delighting in the commandments and the precepts of God looks like in the heart. Now, The rest of Psalm 112 shows what it looks like in the life of a follower. If you continue on with me, in verse 2, it says, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. And there are many physical blessings in this psalm that are not promises for those who are following the Lord. They're not promises of righteousness that as we continue to follow the Lord, He'll give us riches and blessings and loss of children. None of these are their promises. It's more so a principle showing how the righteous man deals with his blessings and handles his blessings and stewards his blessings that the Lord has given him. This exemplifies how righteous man lives in his life. His offspring are the first blessing that the psalmist starts with. Before the blessing of wealth, before the blessing of riches, he begins with the children. There's an obvious value that the blessed man has for his children because he has raised them up to be mighty and to be upright. He stewarded the blessing of children as parents ought to. and did a quick Google search of studies of parent involvement in relation to the success and behavior of their children, and they unanimous, unanimously agreed that quality parenting is in a direct relationship to behavior and success of their children. And this checks out for the blessed man here. His children are mighty and they are upright. They are powerful, they're obedient. He has stewarded the gift of children well. He's been a good father. He's been a good parent to his children. He has seen them as a blessing and treated them as such. He has stewarded his blessing well. And I read a quote from a minister on this verse in particular. The uh, verse three wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. And he says, wealth and riches are in his house, not in his heart. Wealth and riches are in his house, not in his heart. This man is not motivated by the blessings he receives. He is motivated by the God that he serves. This language is indicative that his wisdom with his finances has blessed his children. It remains in his house It is in the generations to come. He has blessed his children. He has stewarded his finances wisely. We can all think of people who have let money become their heart's greatest desire and have squandered it or have spent it all on lavish things and not done anything good with it. And hopefully we can all think of someone who has been blessed with wealth and riches and has stewarded them to God's glory. But for the blessed man, he is not swayed by the Temptation of money. He does not let money capture the desire of his heart. He wants to steward it well. Wealth and riches are not in they are in his house, but they are not in his heart. Someone who's able to be a blessing to so many others because they are not gripped by what their finances have on them. They're not gripped by their finances in their heart. They're more concerned with what their finances can do for God. And as with many things in Scripture, there's a spiritual truth. To this as well. That those who delight in God's commands, who fear God rightly, who obey, who follow, who persevere, they are blessed with spiritual wealth and spiritual riches. And their life may not look like a wealthy man's on the outside, but on the inside there is great spiritual abundance, great love for the Lord, great love for His Word, great delight in the truths of God. And there is spiritual abundance in His heart. That should be the desire of our heart more than wealth and riches and even more than children. Our desire should be for God and for God's law and for his commandments and for obedience to him. Our utmost desire should be for God. The wealth of the blessed man was in his house. It was not in his heart. He had greater things of importance in his heart. We continue on learning about his life in verse 4. It says, light dawns in the darkness for the uprights. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. And in 1 John 1.5, it says, God is light. In Him, there is no darkness at all. And God's light is His truth. Even in the darkest places, truth shines for the blessed man. He is the one who delights in God's commands. He who performs them with uprightness and with faithfulness. He knows God's Word. He meditates on God's Word. And God's word invades every aspect of his life, even the darkest things that he encounters. There's light present, light dawns in the darkness for the man who is blessed. And the man displays the character of the God that he serves. Just as God was given the characteristics of grace and mercy and of righteousness, so is this man. As God is righteous, so are his people. As God is gracious, as God is merciful, so his people ought to be. And there is a family resemblance between God and his people. And just as for many of you, you've probably been told that you look like one or both of your parents, we ought to resemble our spiritual father. But this is no physical resemblance besides that we are image bearers of God. It is a spiritual resemblance. It's a resemblance of our character, of, of our heart. And if someone would compare your life and your characteristics and and your fruit in your life to the way scripture attributes these characteristics to God, how would they square up? God's people should resemble Him like Father, like Son. And not only is a blessed man full of grace and mercy, he is generous in his just in his dealings. Continuing on in verse five, it says, it is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. And once again, he's not bound by his money. He's not bound by the other blessings in his life. He's generous. He's charitable. He's unselfish, just as his Father in heaven is. He is the same. He resembles his Father. He conducts all his affairs with justice. All his dealings are full of integrity. The decisions he makes are upright, they are full of honor. He is a man that can be trusted. He's a man that others Look to for wisdom, who they look to when they need help, when they are in a bind. He is full of justice. He is not swayed by the temptations of this world. The enticing things around him do not alter his heart. He is just and he is firm and he is stable. His heart and his mind are set on the things of God, not on the things of man. And therefore, his actions follow what his heart is set on. Once again, there's this, this family resemblance in the character of the man who fears God. God's children look like him. Not entirely, but based on the fruit of your life and the content of your heart, there should be evidence of qualities that come directly from God. A heart that loves generosity, justice, faithfulness, mercy, uprightness, righteousness, These are all key characteristics of a heart that has been changed by the grace of God. And hopefully, if you've been walking with the Lord for any stretch of time, you might be able to see growth in in any or all of these characteristics. And these, these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what a godly life looks like. But as you consider growth in these areas, don't forget the words that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, if you love those who love you, What benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. You aren't immediately in the same frame as the blessed man if you are loving and caring to those who are easy to love and to care for. It is not an impressive mark of personal holiness if I'm faithful to my wife for the rest of our lives. There are plenty of non-believers who are faithful spouses. It is not an impressive mark of personal holiness if you're generous to those who you love the most, they are the easiest people to be generous to. One of God's chief characteristics is his love for those who are hard to love, namely us. You, me, his people, we're at one point in time in opposition to God and we still so often go back to our sins or find new sins to commit and stand in opposition to God time and time again, and he knew this would happen, and he still chose to love us. He still sent his only Son, and he loved us so much as his only begotten Son, he sent to earth to live a perfect life, the life that we could not live, even though he's called us to it, to die the death that we were deserving to die for the sake of our sins that he would bear them because he knew that we could not. That is, the love that God displays for his people is this kind of love that we can even comprehend. God's love for his people is a set-apart kind of love. There's nothing like this type of love outside of God. Men and women who delight in obedience to God don't only do it when it's easy. What sets God's people apart is that when they are charitable, gracious, kind, and compassionate, even when doors are slammed in your face, when people get upset at you, when people despise the truth that you stand for, when people abuse your generosity, when you are wronged time and time again and still respond in love, there's a small taste of the love that God displayed and showed for His people. And that is the mark of someone who's been conformed into holiness is displaying this kind of love that God has shown His people, not just loving those who are easy to love, but loving those who are the hardest to love as a mark of one who follows God, who's obedient to God, who bears a family resemblance of who God is. And another test of personal holiness is found in verses 6 through 8. And it says, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. And the righteous man is stable. He's strong. He's secure. He's confident. He trusts the Lord. And the saying, he will be remembered forever, is speaking to the righteousness of his life, the righteousness of his body, the righteousness of his essence. It is a godly essence that is the righteousness that endures forever it is not his own righteousness it is god's righteousness that always endures and endures through his children too through godly men and through godly women god's righteousness endures through them and there's something particular about these verses that i think is easy to breeze by it's a type of trust in the lord that is specific to trusting In God's sovereignty and even this word sovereignty is easy to acknowledge and move on from we might use it often or hear it often and theologically many of us may believe in God's sovereignty if not all of us may believe in in God's sovereignty but how many people practically live it out how many of you practically live it out the righteous man it's not afraid of bad news. He is steady and he trusts in God. What an astounding peace this man must have. To be so rooted in what he knows to be true about God that nothing causes him to fear. No matter what the bad news might be, he stands firm. He trusts in God's sovereignty and he believes no matter what that God has the outcome decided. He believes In God. He trusts God. He is strong. He is stable. He is secure. Can you say that about yourself in your relationship with the Lord? How much do you really trust God? In your heart of hearts, do you trust God enough that you don't fear what might be headed your way? Do you trust God enough that you aren't fearful of what life would look like without someone in it, a friend, a loved one, without a job in it? not to say that these aren't sad, traumatic things, but it's more so where our, our trust is at. Do we fear things that life could bring our way, or do we fear the Lord and trust the Lord? This is a level of faith that many of us, including myself, still need to climb to. This man's faith will never be moved. He is not unsteady. If something is to come his way, you know how the righteous man will respond. You know for certain, because he is firm, in his faith. He's grounded in his trust of God's sovereignty. I heard the story of a pastor one time whose wife and I think daughter, daughter or son were in a terrible car accident. They were unsure if either one would live through it. And he gets to the hospital and one of his children had beat him to the hospital and he runs in and he says, don't worry, God is sovereign. Everything is going to be just fine. And to think of That story, and to hear his own son recounting the trust that he saw in his dad, the trust in the sovereignty of God, is still a moving story to this day. This pastor then shared his retelling of it and spoke of how tragic it would have been to lose his wife and to lose his child. but His reliance on God was so strong that he wasn't overcome with the thought of his loved ones being gone. He was overcome with a trust for who God is. And that is an extreme scenario that many of us may not experience something like. Maybe we will. But it's a wonderful testimony, an, exa- an, exa- an example of what trust in God really looks like. We should all not only hope to trust in God that much, but we should diagnose the areas of our life that we are still so fearful of bad news and ask God to give us more confidence in Him than fear of what is to come. The true fear of God means that you fear nothing else. That is what the blessed man displays here. Nothing in this world can grip him because he is so gripped by his obedience and love for God. Do you trust God the way the blessed man trusts God? If you continue on with me in verse 9, you see that he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, his horn is exalted in honor. The righteous man is honored because of his virtuous living, his godly essence to his life. His righteousness as God's righteousness endures forever. He once again is generous with his money. The things of this world don't tie him down. And the same can't be said for the wicked man in verse 10. It says, the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away the desire of the wicked will perish. Those who hate God hate the things of God. Their desires will perish. This is a challenge for us that most of us can see some glimpses of righteousness and we have professed faith in Christ and we are committed to a life of holiness and so it would be easy to write off verse 10 and say, well, we're not the wicked man because we believe in Christ and we now follow Him. But it helps us to diagnose what might be present in our life. It's a challenge for us. What desires do we currently have that still need to be weeded out, that still resemble more of the wicked man rather than the righteous man? What desires in your life are counter to the things of God? Is it hard for you to be generous to others? You hold too tightly to your money? Is it hard for you to love those who you don't feel like loving? Do you struggle with the desire to be faithful to God, your spouse, your friends, your family? What disordered desires, ungodly desires do you have? What sins are you still clinging to from your past life before you were born again in Christ that you just don't want to let go of? Does your pride get in the way of your walk with God? Do you have a tendency to think that your way is better than God's way? Do you struggle to really trust God? Wicked desires will perish. That is the promise of this psalm. We conform our lives to God, not only our actions, but our, the, our heart's desire is to be conformed to God, for God, in his image. We must search our hearts and weed out the disordered desires and commit our way to the way of God. God's people should resemble the God that they claim. And I would be remiss to preach this whole sermon and for you all to think that this is just a do-better sermon. It is a call to righteousness. That is the call of the Christian life is to see the characteristic of God, characteristics of God, and to embody that and to walk into obedience of his laws and his precepts and what he has commanded his people. But if you leave here thinking this righteousness is what earns you a place in God's kingdom, you would be wrong. And I wouldn't have done my job today if you left here thinking that it's because of the life of the righteous man that puts him in God's kingdom, that puts him as a child of God. This righteousness is out of response to God and in walking in faithfulness to him, but this righteousness the man has does not justify him. This righteousness doesn't make us right before God, we do not grow in righteousness so that at some point in time we'll be inwardly just before God. James tells us that if you've transgressed any part of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. So even as you grow in righteousness and you know there's still sins in your life, you're still guilty of the whole law. And as long as you've sins in your life, you will continue to be guilty before God. We need something more than just help to grow in our righteousness. We need a substitute for our righteousness and that's what Jesus did as he came and lived the life that we were supposed to live that we didn't live as he died the death he said he came to give his life as a ransom for many there was a debt that was owed that we could not pay even if our life depended on it even if we lived a life like this blessed man we still would fall short and we still would owe this insurmountable debt Jesus gave His life as a ransom for many paid the debt that we owed to God for transgressing the covenant that he set with us. It was a debt that we could not pay on our own. But because of that, and because we live in the light of Christ's righteousness and his sacrifice that he propitiated since he assuaged God's wrath and put it on himself, not on us. Now we believe in that and we live to righteousness as a new creation Christ. So we can put off our old self and put on the new man and grow in holiness, delight in God's Word, be conformed to the image of Christ, just as the man in Psalm 112 does. He pursues righteousness. He pursues being obedient and faithful to God and to His Word. As we do that, one day we may resemble our Heavenly Father. God's people should resemble the God that they claim, like Father, like Son. And it's a small image of us resembling God. It's an even greater image of Christ coming as God to take the place that we deserved. Now we profess faith in Him and He stands in the presence of the wrath that was waiting for us. And we put our sins on Him and now we live to new life in Christ. We were born again in Christ, given new life to live as in the family of God like Father like son, like father, like daughter. Let's set our hearts on God. Let's live to righteousness this week, and we give God all the praise for the righteousness that is in our life because of his work, because of Christ on the cross, because of Christ's sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are holy and awesome, that you are faithful and just, you have given precepts to your people help us to to grow in obedience to that but not growing in obedience so that we might think we have earned our standing before you but exactly so we can see that we have not earned our standing before you but we can grow in righteousness and give you the praise for it because we are your children because we bear the family resemblance that you have given us lord so we thank you for its truth we thank you for christ and for his sacrifice, assuaging your wrath onto himself and giving us the ability to walk as a new creation, being born again in him. We thank you for this glorious truth. Give us strength to, to grow in righteousness this week and to live lives with our hearts centered on you. It's all in your name, Lord. Amen.